Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. This week, we'll be looking at the evolving regulatory probe into the rate at which LIBOR was charged amid the crisis. Because LIBOR is tied to $350 trillion worth of financial products from interest rate derivatives to loans, very, very small movements as 25 basis points make huge knock-on effect. There have been research showing the gains that could be made if one bank was able to push the rate just even slightly. Then we'll move on to look at bank capital and investors mounting concerns that regulators are asking banks to hold too much capital. Investors have got a point, but then it's obviously clear that we do need these tougher capital requirements. We all know the reasons behind them. You know, we've had some of the biggest bailouts in the world in this country. We need that extra layer of of protection. And I don't think anyone is arguing that the UK maybe shouldn't go further. It's just how extreme we want to push it. And finally, we'll conclude with a look at Ireland, the Irish banking stress tests that are due to be announced later this week. I think the outcome of this really is going to be pretty much a fully nationalised Irish banking sector. Joining me in the studio to discuss these topics are Charlene Goff and Megan Murphy. Let's turn to our first topic here for today, the regulatory probe into the alleged manipulation of LIBOR rates. That's the rates at which banks borrow from each other in the London market using a variety of different currencies. The row, Megan, is around the dollar rate for LIBOR going back a few years. Is that right? This has been a probe that's now about two weeks old that was first disclosed by UBS, the Swiss group, in its annual report the week before last. Since UBS's disclosure, it was being investigated by both US and UK regulators about possible manipulation of the LIBOR rate, as you said, going back to the lead up to the crisis and just during the crisis, specifically 2006 to 2008, it's since emerged that several other leading banks, including Citigroup, Bank of America and Barclays, have received formal subpoenas over alleged manipulation of the LIBOR rate. And what we discovered last week was that Barclays actually is is very much at the centre of this alleged manipulation. Is that right? There appear to be several different strands of the investigation right now. But one thing we do know, and of course we have to be a bit careful here because of the legal issues involved, but one thing we do know is that Barclays is specifically being investigated for alleged possible breakdown of its Chinese walls between some of its traders and its Treasury Department, which officially submits the data for the daily LIBOR calculations. The calculations are done at 11 a.m. every day. And basically how it works is banks submit their own rate, what they can borrow off of, to Thomson Reuters, who does the calculations on behalf of the British Bankers Association. It's a pool, really, of how many was it, 14 or 15? 16 at the time for the US dollar rate, and now it's 20. But how it works is it's designed, I mean, this is one of the, the very interesting things about this probe, is that participants in the market and outside of the market, while there's always been suggestions that 
the rates appeared not to reflect actual borrowing costs in times of extreme stress that market participants say it would be very difficult to manipulate because the rate is done from a pool of banks that then outlying rates, the top and the bottom are kicked out, any outlying rates are kicked out, and then it's done as an average of between the remaining panel banks. And so market participants in the BBA quite rightly say, look, unless you had a full-blown conspiracy between several banks basically colluding on the ra- on the rates they put in, it would be very difficult to manipulate that process. Now, that being said, a compliance and control failures where traders at a particular bank were exchanging information improperly with a Treasury Department that was submitting that information, that obviously would be quite a big deal, as would also banks communicating with each other about what rates they were setting. Megan, what would be the benefits of banks to manipulate these rules? What what were they hoping to sort of get out of it, if indeed they were doing that? Again, it goes to the multi-pronged nature of it. Now, there's two different issues here. One is that there's always been a suggestion that banks whose funding costs were rising dramatically as the crisis gathered pace. Some of the banks that we know have received subpoenas in this probe, specifically Bank of America, Citigroup, and UBS, they're suggesting that because these rates, after they're submitted, are then publicly available, they do not want to disclose their true cost of funding because it would have been so high. So there is speculation that a certain pool of banks whose funding costs were increasingly dramatically wanted to mask their true cost of funding. And that was the original suggestion for why the probe was launched? That was that- the original suggestion. That has been documented in several different academic papers. This has been something the Wall Street Journal wrote a very in-depth article about this in 2008, saying on the back of academic research, again, that the LIBOR rate does not seem to bear a real relation to what the actual cost of funding is. But it seems that actually when the regulators delved into this, they found something maybe slightly different. Absolutely. I mean, that's how it looks like it's playing out, that then it was revealed. And just quickly to follow up, another way is just because LIBOR is tied to $350 trillion worth of financial products from interest rate derivatives to loans, very, very small movements as 25 basis points make huge knock-on effect. There have been research showing the gains that could be made if one bank was able to push the rate just even slightly and that was known to its trading arm of which way it was going to go, that there are massive gains to be made. Okay, well, let's move on now to our second topic, which is the chatter around the level of bank capital that regulators are requiring banks to hold. In the UK in particular, there's been a rather feisty debate, really, over the past few weeks, as the idea that the International Basel Committee set rate of 7%, which was uh, decided on late last year, that that maybe isn't isn't going to be enough going forward. And there's nothing firm on this, but particularly in the UK, this has been a, a subject of lively debate. And this is making a lot of investors in the city quite nervous. We had a report in Monday's FT about that and about the growing concern with some very heated language being used by the investors we spoke to about the concerns that basic profitability of banks would be insufficiently attractive to make them viable investments in future. Now, obviously, they're talking their own book to an extent uh, and echoing what the bank have been saying as well. But Charlene, do you think they've got a point here? Well, I think so. I mean, we're talking of not just a premium of one or two 
percentage points over the Basel recommended, but even sort of double the the level of courtier one, um, you know, with some commentators suggesting 15 to 20 percent. That number came out of a, a paper by David Miles, who sits on the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England. And it was stressed at the time that this was an academic paper and that it shouldn't sure. be taken too seriously. But what's interesting is that quite a few regulators have in the UK, notably Lord Turner, the chairman of the FSA, has kind of picked up that number. And though he's kind of been cautious about how realistic it would be to use such a ratio in the short term, they've added credibility to the debate by saying, well, yes, that could be desirable in an ideal world. And it seems to suggest that we're going to end up with ratios far in excess of the 7% minimum. Absolutely. And we're, we've already been seeing in the past month or so some of the British banks you know, putting out some signs of the impact this is already having on their returns. You know, we've seen the likes of Barclays downgrade, HSBC come down a bit on their returns on equity. Because they're, they're forecasting really what impact this regulatory capital is going to have in future. Exactly. Higher equity means lower return on equity. Yeah, exactly. And the further that's pushed up, the more drag there will be on their underlying returns. So I think investors have got a point, but then it's obviously clear that we do need these tougher capital requirements. We all know the reasons behind them you know we've had some of the biggest bailouts in the world in this country we need that extra layer of of protection and I don't think anyone is arguing that the UK maybe shouldn't go further it's just how extreme we want to push it. Talking of extreme Megan you've chronicled what's happened in the Swiss market where the Swiss regulators moved faster and and tougher than anybody else. The Swiss rules will bring the total tier one up to 19 percent and there is, we were just having a discussion about this this morning, but there is what is almost a philosophical issue there where they seem to be indicating that actually do they want banks, UBS and Credit Suisse specifically, to have big global investment banks in Switzerland doing what are considered riskier activities? And are they going to effectively capitalize them out of those activities, which does seem to be politically the way things have drifted there are regulatory. And the Swiss banks have put forward their ways of sort of moving their capital to meet those requirements. This was obviously triggered by the fact that UBS was one of the biggest near failures, however you want to describe it, in the crisis. And Swiss taxpayers were on the hook for that. So unsurprisingly, I, su- I suppose, given the scale of the banking industry in Switzerland relative to their GDP. That's the big, that's the big issue is obviously, while in the UK we talk quite frequently about how much the banking sector contributes to GDP in Switzerland, it's magnified and a failure of UBS or Credit Suisse, arguably much more systemically disruptive. But one of the things is when you look at this proposal, you know, similar proposals in the UK, it would affect the different banks very, very differently and would arguably have a very, very negative effect on, on several of the leading banking groups and put them at a very significant competitive dis- disadvantage, particularly to U.S. groups, obviously. So that is something that the government's going to have to grapple with, regulators are going to have to grapple with. But it does look as if, as you say, a sort of U.K. finish in comparison to what they called the Swiss finish is very likely and likely to be quite onerous. Well, now that investors seem to be speaking out, albeit behind the cloak of anonymity, whether their lobbying of regulators will, will have any more sway than banks own lobbying. It's a story I'm sure we'll we'll hear more about over the coming months. Finally, we should move on to Ireland. And Charlene, you're going to be covering the publication later this week of the stress test results. Is this just going to be more bad news about Ireland's banks? I think it really is. And unfortunately, there isn't much good news out there on Irish banks. And this is the culmination 
of stress tests that have been going on for about six, five, six months since we had the initial sort of assessment by the Irish regulators towards the end of, of last year. They said at the time they would go back and conduct much more detailed, thorough stress tests on the biggest banks. And, and that's what we're expecting later this week. I think the outcome of this really is going to be pretty much a fully nationalised Irish banking sector. Including for Bank of Ireland, which is the one that's kind of liked to see itself as apart from the crisis? Exactly. It's the only one that's sort of managed to stave that off so far, but I think by the end of this week, unfortunately, it would be in at least majority government control. I mean, the bank has had a number of months to raise some capital that the that the regulator demanded towards the end of last year, and it hasn't managed to do that fully. So I think it's really run out of time. And I think we're expecting later this week for the capital requirements to get even tougher for the banks. They could require an extra sort of 10, 15 billion euros on top of the 10 billion that was revealed towards the end of last year. So I think the chances of Bank of Ireland retaining its independence are are slim. Now, to what extent, Megan, do you think this is a foreshadowing of the European-wide stress tests, which we're going to get results of those not until June, but they're a kind of ongoing process now. As we've discussed many times in the podcast, there's a scepticism about the parameters of those tests, but also determination seemingly from the chairman of the body that's running them, the EBA, to make them more credible and push through with forced recapitalizations of, of those that fail or nearly fail. Do you think that's likely to happen? Well, I think the the nearly fail issue is potentially interesting and a potential something that could boost these into the realm of significant as opposed to just a sort of non-event where the parameters are so not stringent enough, not tough enough, not exactly what investors and you know analysts would like to see tested. But near fail is a possibility. I mean, the problem is it's always going to be a backwards exercise as opposed to a forward-looking one. And we've talked on this before about whether or not they're looking at the right issues. And as you discussed, I mean, I haven't spoken to very many people who believe that this is going to be anything other than a confirmation of what we knew pretty much and that anything we're going to find is already priced in to the banks at issue. I mean, and there's another sort of interesting dynamic going on in Ireland, which is the relationship between the government and the European Central Bank. And we're trying to get some clarity on that later this week. They're pushing for very different Things. I mean, the, the European Central Bank wants to see more rapid progress in recapitalising the Irish banks, but they can't do that at the risk of triggering further losses. So they're keen to get a, a commitment from the European Central Bank that it will provide longer term funding for them to move them gradually off the emergency funding. So there's quite an interesting conflict going on there, and we should get some details on how that will also play out later this week. Well, one irony, of course, is that while we're going to see Irish banks' use of the ECB facilities changed, I'm sure, depending on the nature of this bailout, Portuguese banks, meanwhile, which last week um, were caught up in the whole Portuguese crisis, I suspect are going to be tapping the facility more. And all of this change puts another cloud over the whole European stress test process. You know, why are we doing a a stress test that doesn't actually stress the whole of the sovereign debt holdings of these banks? Anyway, that's all we have time for today, sadly. All that's left for me to do is to thank Charlene and Megan in the studio and to thank you for listening. Banking Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? 
Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.